You good? Very. Okay. We're just going to keep this close to you. Okay. We're going to start. All right. Uh, welcome to What Else? David Singer. So happy to be here. Very happy to have you here. Um, is Anthony is your middle name, maybe? That's correct. Is that right? Good Paul. Where did that one come from? Uh, it came from, uh, I believe it was my baptism name. Okay. I was named after my uncle, my dad's uncle David, who died right before I was born. Okay. And there's a Jewish tradition that, you know, you name somebody after a recently deceased relative. But uh, I was baptized and raised Catholic. Oh. So I had to have a baptismal name. So I think they chose Anthony to, you know, yeah. to work in that context. Did you, did you like go to church and Sunday school and things like that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I went until, so my mother was Irish Catholic from like a fairly prominent Irish Catholic family. This is in New York. Okay. And uh, my dad was a Jew from the Bronx. He was not very popular in her family at the time they were married. Mm-hmm. Um, but they struck a bargain that uh, their boys would be raised Catholic on the condition that when we were old enough to make up our minds about how we felt about stuff, that there wouldn't be undue pressure put on us to continue. Yeah. And to my dad's credit, he used to get up on Sundays and go to church and sit there. I wasn't old enough to know how hard he was rolling his eyes, but, you know, right. he didn't stay home and just watch football. He went with us. And so I went through, I had my baptism, I had my first confession, I had my first communion. And then around the time I was 12, I was like, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And they were in the process of getting divorced at that point, And it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was a free for all. Yeah. Do you remember, like, how you felt about it? Did you want to get up on Sunday mornings and go? Or? No. I mean, I, I remember feeling uh, I was a I, – I, I always wanted to be a good boy. Probably still do. Yeah. And so there was part of me that wanted to go along with it because I know it was a thing that made my mother happy. Uh, I remember going to my first confession and having nothing to confess. That I had to – I remember being in line – uh, this is – I was probably, what are you, seven years old when that happened, six years old, something like that. And I remember I was like two kids away and trying to rack my brain to, with something to say. And so I got in the little booth and I said, I, I took the Lord's name in vain. And they gave me ten Hail Marys and that was it. So <coughs> my first confession was a lie, which is what they Confessing call a metaphor. Yeah, right. Yeah. I like that. Um. And you have, for people listening, you have two siblings? I have two siblings. And what's the age breakdown uh, there? John is about three and a half years younger than me, and Luke is about nine and a half years younger than me. Okay. He was the accident baby. My parents, rocky marriage, they did what every good young couple does. They're like, let's have a baby and fix this. And they had a baby and then got divorced like two hours later. After Luke was born. After Luke was born, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a pretty big spread. What was that? Do you, I mean, I guess you don't know anything other than that, but that. It was shocking. I mean, not shocking exactly. I remember when they told us, I remember being in the backseat of the car at night when they told us that there yeah. was another baby on the way and we were like, whoa, it's crazy. And I remember being in, uh, we went to my parents' friend's house the night my mom gave birth. And I remember sitting up in their little, uh, they, like they had a guest room. And John and I were sleeping in that room up there waiting for Luke to be born. 
and it was August 29th, 1979. And I remember we were watching, I assume it was preseason football based on the date. But uh, I do remember being up there watching a football game while we were waiting for the baby to come. Were you, do you remember being excited about it? Were you psyched about the idea of having a new sibling? Or I don't know how I felt about it then. I really loved having a very young brother when I was growing up. It was cool when I was 13 to have a three-year-old brother and when I was 16 to have a six-year-old brother. It's like having a puppy. Uh, the spread between John and I was close enough that we were always sort of I don't know if we were competitive with each other exactly so much as we were in each other's way. But Luke was so far afield from me that it was all it was there was never any of that when we were little. And uh also my parents were pretty, you know, kind of out to lunch by the time that Luke was of uh of the age of understanding. So I took kind of a quasi parental role at the time. When my late teens and when Luke was seven, eight years old. And so it was different. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it was – I definitely uh, felt strongly about it when I was a teenager. How I felt at 10, I don't really know. Right. Do you think you took that um, that sort of quasi-parental role – do you think it just sort of came naturally to you or do you think it was circumstantial and you're like, I better do this or it's needed or, you know, I don't know if you can I don't know, parse going, that out. I'm happy to do this, but we're going heavy, like right. early. Um, I, I don't know. I think it came sort of naturally to me. And yeah. then also if with the benefit of hindsight and now being – I'm older now than my parents <clears throat> were then. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that I felt that my family structure at home was pretty – tenuous and if i was able to give it some organization by filling in that role then that's what i was going to do and plus it needed to be done yeah my mother was we lived with my mother and she was working she built a career for herself out of nothing Mm -hmm. after my parents split up and and it a thing that i totally understand now that i'm an adult that was a job. She was an agent. She was sort of a big shot agent in Chicago. Okay. And she had dis- entertainment. Uh, yeah. Actors like TV or... and film. Okay. She had like a kids division at a big agent. She was. Okay. Um, but she was out a lot at night, which left me at home. Let's say I was 16 to yeah. be with my brothers. And John was 13 and probably disinterested in what I had to say. And Luke was six. So a lot of that stuff sort of fell on me at the time. And I didn't know at the time that it was fairly unusual, but uh, I didn't resent it. I just did it. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, did you have a feeling that, and maybe I didn't, maybe you can remember this, maybe you can't, but that like the idea of family and having a unit and stuff was important to you? Was yes. that a thing like you wanted to create and preserve? Always has been. Yeah, And uh, in the times when that's been in short supply, I have found a way to, uh, to manufacture that. Mm-hmm. And I'm very lucky in that I'm crazy about my wife and my kid, and I've got a really great life at home. Yeah. And I've also historically found 
people who I love and held them close. And I think that's part of why I'm still super tight with the guys I grew up with. I still have the same core friends I had when I was 12. And I think that the dime store psychology, like a uh, treatise on that wouldn't be hard to, to figure out, right? Yeah. I don't let go of people. I don't. Mm-hmm. Makes me think there's that expression, um, right? You can't make new old friends. Yeah, sure. Right? It's true. There's something, there's something different about that. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that, uh, first of all, I got really lucky in that I grew up with a bunch of people who I think are extraordinary and interesting and genuinely thoughtful, caring people. And uh, we found something in each other that we didn't feel like was disposable. And I know you feel the same way. I mean, our, you and I, our friendship is relative. We've only known each other 25 years. That's like, that's new stuff. Yeah. But uh, I've been very lucky, and there were times. Uh, so my, I, I have the core group of guys that I grew up with. I went to Parker, and there was a time when I was completely estranged from both of my parents, and their families took me in, and I like literally lived at the houses of these guys who had always been my kind of de facto siblings. It's and, pretty uh, great. It's pretty great. When you... Um so I'm interested in this thing about about meeting these guys at, at age 12 or whatever. Um, I was just thinking recently about the sort of luck of the draw in one's proximity, especially when you're young, and especially when we were young where there was no internet or something like that. Like, you were kind of dealt this hand of cards, right? Yeah. And you could discard some of them, right? You had however many kids were in your class, and now, you could... Um, at the time that I started, so I moved from New York to Chicago when I was 10, and I went to a couple of different schools. I went to LaSalle Language Academy for two weeks and got the shit beaten out of me twice. I went to a Catholic school called St. Michael's for like a month, and then a nun hit me with a ruler, and I ended up just getting pulled out. Then I went to Hardy Prep for a year, and then I ended up at Parker, which is a school near Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And at the time, I... Started there in my seventh grade class, there were probably 50 kids. Right. And I've probably talked to six of them on the phone in the last week. It's a, I got, it's, there's so much luck involved. Yeah. Also, the argument could be made that it's behavioral, that I, we were such like unformed putty at that point that by the virtue of sharing those experiences at a time when we were at our most malleable, that we all turned into like-minded people. Yeah. But I mean, even within that, I assume there was some discernment, right? There was some selection process where you were like... Huge. I also just got really lucky. Yeah. I've been a very lucky person in my life, and this is yeah. one of the most significant ways. Yeah. I wonder, do you think... Sometimes I wonder about if you met those same people now... Yeah. You know, how would, how would the connection be? I don't know. I, don't right. I mean, there's no way to know, but there's no way to know. But I would say that also, when I first started at the school, uh, I, w I was very short. I was a really short kid growing up. I would when I got my driver's license, I was five three, 
and uh, I was a year younger. You might have been two inches taller than me. <laughs> right? So in seventh grade, I must have been like, uh, I mean, like an, like an American girl doll. I mean, I don't know how big I was, but right. it wasn't big. And uh, it was a loud mouth. And I got, like, pushed around a little bit. I wasn't, like, uh, I wasn't excluded. I was, like, the guy that, I was the guy that, like, they kept around but occasionally got pounded on a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm still hanging out with all those guys. Yeah. Joke's on them. So, um, when, when did you, how long did you live in New York? Did you live from? Ten years. Okay. From when you were born? From when I was born. I was born, we lived in the city on the Upper East Side until I was like three and a half, and then we lived in Chappaqua before it was the home of the Clintons. Now everybody right. knows. Like, but it was, you know, it was kind of a, like a hippie-ish slash posh suburb about an hour outside of New York. Mm-hmm. And you moved here, you said, when you were 10? I was 10. My dad got, my dad was a guy on the make, and he got named president of an advertising agency called Wellsridge Green. And he had to uproot his family and move his wife and his three children, the youngest of whom was less than a year old, to Chicago and start a life out of nothing. And he was nine years younger then than I am now, which is crazy because I like play piano in my underwear for a living. So the idea that he was the president of an ad agency is... Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> <coughs> Were you... Um... Were you competitive as a kid, do you think? Yeah. Always in all kinds of things? Always. Still am. Yeah. Yeah, I have a... I, I, I need that juice, actually. Yeah, so what is it? Is it that you want to win? Is it that you want to be the best? Is it you just like the action of, like, the friction of competition or what? I like the action, but I can't play unless it's playing. I, I play to win. Like, I play a lot of tennis these days. I play tennis a few times a week. And uh, I play with friends. I play in a league. I play with randos all the time. But I play with friends, and we go out, and I don't want to just hit around. I want to play. Let's play a set. Let's play a match. Let's play whatever. And I'm trying as hard as I can the whole mm-hmm. time. And I don't care that much if I lose. Like, I don't like – I don't have a hissy fit if I lose or, like, argue about line calls or anything right. like that. But I need the competition in order to – yeah, for it to have that it. juice for me, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm only that way about everything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. Everything that, including things that aren't strictly competitive. Like, are you that way about? I don't know, playing music or cooking food or other things. Or are you competitive about things that have a competitive and overt competitive component? I would like to say that I'm only competitive about things that only have a competitive component. But the reality is, is that. Uh, in the background, I'm probably competitive about a lot of things. Yeah. I have a a preoccupation. I have a, I have a bunch of preoccupations, <laughs> but I have one of my preoccupations is about success and the arbitrary ways that we define success and we keep score about stuff like that. And uh, it's a thing that the intellectual part of me likes to think that I'm above, but the lizard part of me is definitely not. So, uh, let's get into that for a second, just so I can understand a little better. The You think that you're unable to resist the sort of conventional definitions of success, or you're testing that, or uh, 
I think th- I I don't know how I feel about uh-huh. it at any given time. I'm in a constant conversation about uh, what defines success. Yeah, and the versions that were modeled for me never really made sense. You know, I come from a long line of unhappy rich people, and uh, I was determined to not let that be the thing that defined me. And then I went into a bunch of different fields as an adult where it's almost impossible to feel like you've made a dent. Monetarily or otherwise? No, not monetarily. I don't care about that. I don't. That's the thing, right, is that people, generally speaking, use money to define how successful or unsuccessful they've been. And uh, the competition thing notwithstanding, I haven't been able to generate any interest in that whatsoever. From yourself. Like From you myself. Yeah. yeah, I don't You just care. can't get motivated by it. I'm not motivated by it. Yeah. I'm not. I don't have a, I don't have a thirst for acquisition. <laughs> I don't. I don't care. Like, I also like, you're probably this way too. You know how a bunch of guys like talk about cars and they know about cars and they see, oh, there's that car. I don't know anything about cars. If I were ever in a hit and run and the car drove away, the cop would be like, what kind of car was that? I'd say it was gray. Well, I don't know. I don't know what any of that stuff is. And uh, I, I, I just, I don't care. I don't. Yeah. I also, like, I'm a musician, but... I don't have 50 guitars, despite the fact that I've been a professional musician for more than half my life. I have, like, five guitars. That's enough right now. That's, I mean, like, I have an appreciation for tools. Yeah, right. But uh, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. So to get back to the success thing, for me, it's like, how do I define it? Do I define it exclusively by how proud I am of the finished product of the things that I turn out or how many people respond to it or all of that. And what does it mean? And where's the finish line? And I don't think that anybody who does what I do or what you do has ever thought I got to the finish line. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Elton John. But do you think if like, uh, Elton John puts out a record and the papers shit on it that it doesn't hurt his feelings? Probably does. So, yeah. yeah, so how do you define it? I don't know the answer. And it's a thing that I spend a lot of time kind of asking myself about. So if we use, like, m- music as an example on that. Sure. Um, Thinking about times where you were satisfied with an outcome versus times where you were less satisfied, do you do you know what it was that? Well, yeah, I actually, I mean, I have a very specific, sure, and unique experience. So, I don't know if the listeners of what else have any idea who I am, but so I spend a lot of time as a musician, and making records and playing shows was fun, and it was also on some level careerist, right? I was like, well, I'm going in this direction because I want to get notoriety. I want to try to get to a place where I have a lot of fans, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I got 
sick of doing the same thing over and over again. I'd write a record and I'd record a record and I'd play a bunch of shows and sometimes people would come and sometimes people they wouldn't and lucky for me people wrote a bunch of nice stuff about the stuff that I make and then it would be like 72 hours later and it would be like oh that's that's that thing that you did before rather than this thing that I spent three years on and I was in the process of sort of switching gears. I Went back to school. I got the degree that I sort of blew off getting the first time. Which was? So I went to college and then I sort of spent a lot of time fucking around because my situation at home was a mess. And uh, I dropped out of college after two years and spent the next 10 years driving around the country in a van with my friends playing rock shows. It always kind of nagged at me that I didn't do it. At one point, I'd gotten an offer to go to Oxford to study Irish literature, and I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to hang out with my friends and play music. I made a lot of questionable decisions at that point in my life. Um, I went back to a school at a place called Goddard College, which is a college in Vermont, and it was a low-residency program where you'd go for two weeks at a time, more or less, and do some sort of intensive study with an advisor and then come home and write. I was working on creative writing, so I was yeah. writing a book. Uh, it was approximately a thousand times as much work as it would have been to just finish college the first time, but it was fantastic, and it really taught me how to be a writer in a way that maybe sitting in a room with a bunch of undergrads wouldn't have done. So I wrote a book of short stories, and I decided uh, with some advice from my brothers that I should turn one of them into a short film. And so... I made a short film called Advantage Weinberg, which was produced by my brother John, which is the only way it could have possibly gotten made because he's a skilled and experienced producer. And it was edited by me and my brother Luke. And then I did the music for it and we put it out into the world and it did really well for a short film, which is unusual. But I got to take it to all these film festivals and I thought it was going to be a bunch of rich dudes with checkbooks, but it was just a bunch of other dudes like me at most of these film festivals. Uh, but I did get to go to some fancy ones. We got to go to Cannes, with it, which was really exciting. Uh, and then I took a bunch of meetings and decided to come back here and just make a movie uh, on my own, of course, with John again. And we made a feature film called Imperfections, and it took us like – a three-year process between writing it and raising the money and getting it done and making the movie. And then at the end of it, I started playing music again with my bands and my friends who are people who I love and care about. And after making a movie which takes so much money and so much time and so much like uh, confluence of people's efforts and ideas, that playing music became weightless it was just about the joy of doing it. And when I changed my attitude about the careerist part of it, mm -hmm. it, it opened up the whole thing for me. It was like, oh, my God, I chose this at the beginning because I love it and because it makes me feel good. And in the – I mean, I didn't play a show for five years. And in the interim – I like I had forgotten all the things about it that made me nuts, but when I picked up a guitar again, I remembered all the things about it that made me love it. And now it's just like pure, unadulterated joy. And I was like, here's the new ethos. 
I'm only going to do the shit that's fun, and I'm only going to do it the way that I want to do it, and I'm not going to do any of the other dumb stuff that I hated, and I'm just not going to care about all the stuff I can't control. I'm just going to write songs and make records and play shows, and it's fucking great, (laughs) and I love it. Yeah, it is great. Like, if you're not going to get rich or get uh, the admiration of millions of strangers, you better enjoy it. Right? Yeah. I think you're exactly right. I think it's... um, Especially to go through all that stuff and then kind of re-be able to tap back into the original voltage is pretty great. Yeah, and it was there. I mean, I I recognized the first couple times when I set up a rehearsal with my bands. Like, what if I reach for it and it's not there? What if I reach for it and I still feel like shit about it? And I completely did not. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty great. Um, So let's go back to the other part you were talking about in, in, in there earlier about the money and stuff. So you made the observation about people being unhappy but having a lot of money, and I think that that's an interesting thing to me because so much of, I think, what's communicated to us or what we absorb in the world and in America or whatever is this idea that that's the thing that saves you, right? That money, and it, I think it solves a bunch of problems, but it, I'm not sure if you wind up a bunch of people from happiest to least happy, if I could tell you exactly who had how much money. Well, yeah, you couldn't, which is the thing that you figure out when, you're, yeah. when you turn into a grown-up. Um, the, the reality is, is that uh, everyone wishes they had more than they have. And uh, I am fortunate in that I have managed to cobble together a weird life in which I'm fine. A lot of it is also the fact that, you know, my, we have a two-income family. Sure. And we only have one kid, and we have a modest little house, and uh, our reach has not exceeded our grasp. Yeah. Is that what the expression is? Yeah, that sounds right. So, uh... I'm too tired to parse it, but yes, yeah. that sounds right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you've set it up in a place where you don't have to be stretching all the time. Also, it's, you know, I, I just can't be bothered. I mean, it's the thing is, I, I'm lucky in that I don't pretend like uh, I'm a working class hero. I have, I would, I had benefit of having the my education through high school taken care of mm-hmm. and uh i have been surrounded by a bunch of people who when i've looked to them for help achieving my more outlandish ideas they've come through mm-hmm. especially john who helped get advantage weinberg and imperfections made mm-hmm. which i wouldn't have been able to do without him but a lot of other people, too, and not just with their money, but with their time and with their effort. And uh, I, I'm humbled by the amount of generosity that I've been shown in my life. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Let's talk a little about music. Yeah. Um, so when did you start playing an instrument? I started playing an instrument. Uh, so I took like four guitar lessons when I was six. Okay. But I didn't have a guitar even. But my brother, John, was taking lessons at the Old Town School of Folk Music. And it was summer. I think I was 15. And I didn't have a summer job because I worked as a model and as an actor. So I would go on auditions and the occasional modeling job. But it was the 80s, and it wasn't like they felt like my time had to be accounted for. It was sort of like, well, if you don't have anything to do, you'll, like, go ride your bike or go play football in the street Mm -hmm. with your friends. So uh, I had a lot of time. And this guitar was at home, and they had sheet music, the Old Town School of Folk Music songbook, what had all those, like, Steve Goodman songs, Cockroaches on Parade, and whatever else, Big Rock Candy Mountain, whatever else was in there. But they had tabulature, and for the uninitiated, tabulature is like a little diagram of a guitar neck and with the dots where your fingers are supposed to go. So I painstakingly figured out, okay, well, I'll put my fingers here, and this makes a D. Mm -hmm. And I'll put my fingers here, and this makes a G. So I would go D, 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 G, 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 D, D, just back and forth and back and forth. And I would do calisthenics learning how to play guitar all day. Um, It's worth pointing out that I've been like a music uh, aficionado since I was very little. My dad was a huge music fan, jazz fan. I grew up in a house with hundreds and hundreds of records. I had a record collection of my own from the time I was six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. So I cared a lot about music. So when I decided I was going to learn how to play guitar... I didn't. I wasn't cavalier about it. I was like, I'm gonna fucking learn how to play guitar. Yeah. Um, my first band was kind of like a just. We used to just mess around in my garage and in my friend's attic, called Der Studs. And uh, the only song we knew, we knew two songs. It was "I Will Follow" by U2 and "Taking Care of Business" by Bachman Turner Overdrive. Great choices, right? The, the poles of popular music. Um. But yeah, so I started playing this guitar back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I, I could kind of bang it out. And then I played Sloop John B. in the Francis Parker production of David and Lisa. So it must have been a little earlier because I was 13 then. And then, uh, yeah, I had a couple of instances in high school where I played guitar on stage in front of people. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, that feels good. Okay, cool. And uh, that was it. I was off. But you played piano, too. When did you learn to play keyboard? I got to college. There's a whole saga about where I was supposed to go one place, and then it didn't happen. And then I found out I was going to the University of Illinois like a week and a half before class started. And they sort of dropped me off with some stuff, and they said, good luck. And the place I was living had a piano in the lobby. (coughs) And so I just... Did the thing on the piano that I did on the guitar. I was like, okay, well, I know a D chord has a D and A and an F sharp in it. So if I put my fingers on my right hand on those notes and I just play the octave with my left hand, I can do that. And then I just mm-hmm. played. I played a lot until I figured out. I did it a bit in high school too, but uh, 
I used to go to DePaul in the seminary. I used to have the music school practice rooms, and they weren't locked. Right. So when I was 16, 17 years old, I could go into the basement of those practice rooms, and there would just be an upright piano. I didn't have a piano at home or anything like that. And I could sit there and mm-hmm. bang it out. I was never very good. Paul was good. Paul, like, took piano lessons, and, like, he can play like a real piano player. I'm a... You have a pretty good facility, though, I think, for someone who didn't really play. I can't really play yeah. anything that well, but I, uh, I do it with enthusiasm. Um, yeah, that's really cool. That's interesting. So, yeah, so I started just playing, and uh, part of it was a means of escape, and part of it was just because everything else seemed dumb and boring, and this was the thing that I really loved and loved to do. So then a couple years went by, and in the summers I would come home, or Christmas break I would come home with Tim and Brendan and Paul, who are my friends that I grew up with. And we used to sit in Tim's living room and play cover songs, and then we rented a four-track, and that was like a big thing. And we figured out that we could record these songs on a four-track. By the way, we never returned that four track, and that place is still in business. And there's probably like a That's warrant out for Tim's arrest. Sure, when it's on an index card because it was before anybody had computers. Um, and we started. A, we had all these songs. We said we should start a band. So we did. We started a band before we had a drummer, and we used to go to this place called At the Tracks, which was mm. just kind of like I was. Yeah, you were there. there. I played there. So we used to go and like hit the open mic night and play God knows what. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of a sudden those things just start gathering momentum. And uh, we picked up our, our first drummer was my friend Ali Singer, And he like learned the drums to be in the band. And, uh, you know, we used to rehearse in his pool house in countryside, Illinois. So we'd drive out there and rehearse and then drive back. There was not a lot of efficiency in our lives then, but we right. had an unlimited amount of time to squander, so yeah. why not? It's pretty great. It was pretty great. But uh, it was a thing that I started started out as a goof with my friends, right? Mm-hmm. And when I do it right now, even the fancy ones, it's still it's like a goof with my friends. That's a nice part of it, right? Is that yeah. you can get multiple things out of it. But I also want to be clear that, like, maybe this is the competitive part of me, like we talked about before, is that I don't go there to screw around. I don't jam. People all the time, people who, like, don't know me well or people who are musicians themselves say, we should get together and jam. And I say yes, but the reality is, is no, I don't jam. <laughs> I find, I'm not good enough to play improvisational music, and I find it tedious so when we go to rehearsal or practice, I had another band. We had a long, uh, we had like an Oasis blur, like do you call it rehearsal or practice? Rehearsal is a little fancy for what it is. But uh, I, we go there to, to work on the stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I think that people I've been in bands with over the years, you can attest to this, that like uh, – I run a tight ship. <laughs> I'm like, I try to keep people on task. Yeah, I think as you should. 
especially was grown up, so there's less of that time yeah. available to squander. Might as well make it useful. I need like a big pink or McCartney in Jamaica situation where I just get like I need to woodshed with a couple of dudes mm-hmm. for two, three weeks. It'd be pretty great. See what comes out. Be an unfortunate Calypso record for sure. One can only hope. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you like to listen to a lot of music still? <sighs> Do you like to go to shows still? Yeah. Concerts and things? As far as listening to music, I, I listen to more music than I think anybody I know. I buy tons of records still. I am... I. I use Spotify. Spotify is, you know, it's morally ambiguous at best, but I buy a lot of records. It's like carbon offsets. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I'm constantly, constantly, like, uh, searching for the records that I don't know and the stuff that I haven't heard and new bands and old bands. And I put a lot of energy into that. And it's purely greed it's not. It's not. There's no desire to be ocarant. It's just that, like, I, I'm, I'm greedy. I want more. And if I find, if I hear a song in a movie, and I like, God, I like that song. I'm the dope who will like figure out what song it mm-hmm. is, and then listen to all of that person's songs, and then listen to all of the songs by all of the bands that person was in, and. Is it the thing? So, like for me, I love the. It's constantly sort of thrilling to discover a new great song that you oh. love. To have a new, it hasn't lost one tiny bit of its luster, from when I was seven years old and heard uh, "Heat Waves" too hot to handle for the first time, and I was like, "What the hell is that?" And I, I have that feeling yeah. as frequently as I can still. But I, I was really, I, I, I was really kind of moved by Nick Miller, your last guest, talking about it. That like he hasn't, he's not jaded. I know, it's and amazing, that he's still, right? and it is. I mean, I don't know if it's something specific to music. I mean, there's there's something incredible about music, and in that it defies description. In that it's hard to really put down in words mm-hmm. what music does or what it means to those of us who've made it a religion. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I haven't lost my appetite for it at mm-hmm. all. That's awesome. It is. It is. It's pre- I'm, yeah, I'm lucky that I haven't Right, because then it's it. a thing you can... It's a thing you can go to then over and over for joy or for comfort or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I've had the experience where... Uh, because of all the weird jobs I've had in music, I've gotten to meet some people I really admire. And some of them have been such colossal assholes that it's ruined their records for me mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me so mad. And it made me so mad to the point that uh, I got to open for Robin Hitchcock at Shuba's. And I have loved Robin Hitchcock since I was... 15 years old, probably. And uh, I avoided meeting him. I didn't... I'd I'd stayed out of the green room. I didn't 
it was two shows too. I just like I didn't I didn't meet him because I couldn't stand the possibility that he was going to somehow diminish how much his music means to me. What? And uh, I totally regret that because you know Robin Hitchcock is just a great guy. It was a total miss on my part. What a weak move that was. But the principle is not wrong. The principle is wrong. That's just it's, – it's antithetical to the way I am about everything else in life, which is that keep putting your hand in the fire and don't be a baby about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I should have met Robin Hitchcock and I'm sure I would have – uh, it would have only burnished my admiration for him. Favorite Robin Hitchcock songs? Oh. Uh, Flesh Number One. Okay. Beetle Dennis. Uh, Pointed at Gran. I Often Dream of Trains. There's so many. There's so many. He just he's he's his own he's his own planet. I'm gonna go with. Cynthia Mask, Ugh. Winchester, mm. there's something else in that acoustic record, I, that's really good. Oh, that record's so good. Um, uh, uh, Glass Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, to the uninitiated What Else listeners, please go out and buy Robin Hitchcock's Globe of Frogs, I, and Queen Elvis would be a good place to start. That's like a good mid-period mm-hmm. Robin Hitchcock threesome you could get into and then take it outward from there and go back to the soft boys. And what were, Do you have earliest bands that were favorites of yours that really stood out, things you were like? Sure. Like every is... other like kid in the 70s, I had a big Beatles thing, and I had okay. the blue record and the red record from the time I was probably six or seven years old. And I had a record player, like in my room, and mm-hmm. I had, you know, I, so I had access to that stuff. Um, the first few records I had, I had a, a TV theme songs record that was huge, oh, nice. and I used to listen to the SWAT theme song and like run around the room with a Tinker Toy machine gun. We we they, we weren't allowed to have guns as a kid, okay, which is good. My kids aren't allowed to have guns either. But, I mean, your kid's going to make a gun out of whatever's there, especially when the SWAT theme song is pounding out at 12 watts a channel or whatever it is. Uh, I had Sean Cassidy's To Do Run Run LP, which was very important to me. Sure. Uh, Bay City Rollers dedication. And I had the Happy Days record with Fonzie on the cover. That was a big one for me. Those are like the early ones that I can remember. But uh, in my house, we listened to a lot of... Uh, Richie Havens, Van Morrison, Ray Charles, uh, Charlie Mingus, John Coltrane. There was a lot of, you know, my dad had really good taste Mm -hmm. in records, and I grew up with, there was good music on in the house all the time. Mm -hmm. My dad famously used to tell me that he went to see Mingus a couple times a week for three years while he was in college. He used to always go see Mingus over and over again. And he said he went up to Mingus one night and he said, you know, I've been coming all the time and I really want you to play Reincarnation of a Lovebird. And Mingus said, oh, man, I can't play that with these cats. We've only been together seven years. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Right? It's a great story. So after the... Those records, those kind of records when you were kids, and obviously the Beatles thing, were there? what was the next band that you remember thinking, like, this is my, like, these are my guys? The stuff that really, like, set me on fire yeah. were, 
like the first couple of Costello solo records for My Aim is True and This Year's Model. Yeah. And uh, Springsteen. Okay. Uh, Which Springsteen record? Uh, Born to Run was the one that when I was probably okay. 10 years old, I my dad used to play it in the house and I was like, what the hell is this? Right. And then The Who. Uh, specifically, Meaty, Beady, Big, and Bouncy was the one that I had. Yeah. Which was not an album per se, but, you know. Like collection, collection of the early of singles. singles, yeah. And, uh, but those were like the possibilities of band music. It went from like the idea of pop music to the idea of, oh, this is art. This is like a thing that a group of people or a person is trying to do and, uh, Certainly, The Clash, and certainly, what were the other big ones? The Rolling Stones. First, My first favorite song ever was Ruby Tuesday, because I remember they used to play it in my, like, progresso nursery school in a synagogue in New York. They used to play Through the Past Darkly, and I used to love She's a Rainbow and Ruby Tuesday. Those are big ones for me early. It's hard to imagine, like, I think sometimes about the the years, right? So let's say those songs were 1966. Six, let's say 66. That's probably within two years. So when I, so this was 10 years after that, not even eight years after that. So it's the equivalent right now for someone, a song that came out in 2011. Yeah. Which is what? Like Imagine Dragons? I don't know. Time's compressed now. Every Teardrop is a Waterfall by Coldplay, something like that. Uh, you lost me. Sorry. <laughs> Something along those lines. Yeah, it yeah. is interesting to think. I was thinking about this recently that, you know, um, when I was a kid, when I was eight years old or whatever, you know, it was only 20 years since Elvis's first recordings. <laughs> yeah. Right, and so that would be like right now. Like, it would be like 1999. Yeah. be like Jay-Z's Can I Get a whatever, what, right? what? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Agreed. So then the, the next big thing, so then the R.E.M., that was, I should not forget R.E.M., which was hugely pivotal. Okay. And U2, right? Like Unforgettable Fire and Boy in October, and then also Reckoning in Fables of the Reconstruction, were like, that was at the time considered like, that was the vanguard of, oh, there's a kind of music that is vaguely unpopular. <laughs> that was college radio music at yeah, the yeah. time. That that was like a window into another world. Yeah. The other one for me was hip hop. So I'm, I grew up in the city and I grew up in kind of the first generation of white kids where hip hop really crossed over. To, we used to listen to WBMX, and we used to, you know, we used to listen to, like, we had, were on mixtape culture. We weren't, you know, we weren't at the forefront of it at all. We right. were, like, downstream from where it was really happening. Right. But we grew up listening to hip-hop. So then when Run DMC came out with Raisin Hell and the Beastie Boys came out with License to Ill, it wasn't a thing that introduced 
hip-hop culture to us so much as they were the avatars of the hip-hop culture we cared about starting to break through into the mainstream. And it was before we had that, like, odious idea that, like, oh, that's popular now, so I'm not interested in it anymore. Mm -hmm. It was a huge deal for us when those records became popular. Sure. And so through the late 80s and then on into the time when I started making records myself, it was college radio music that was really important to me and hip-hop culture that was really important to me, and those were kind of the two polarities. If you're going to pick one U2 album, which one is it? If I'm going to pick one U2 record, I'm probably going to pick The Unforgettable Fire. That's a good choice. Yeah. But, I mean, that says more about where it fit in my life. Yeah, I get it. There's that time. It was like The Unforgettable Fire and... It was that came out in between in my brain anyway. This is probably wrong. Peter Gabriel Security and Peter Gabriel So, which were also really big records for yeah, me sure. at that time. And I don't know if I was just like in like a Lenoir phase or whatever mm-hmm. was going on, but like there was a whole that was part of that whole ecosystem for me. Were you into the Peter Gabriel stuff? Yeah, pretty so he- heavy. What was the first thing you remember getting into of his stuff? Um, I think security was the first one that I really got into. And then I went back mm-hmm. for the other yeah. records. Uh, and then I got the security. So the other thing, if we want to talk about, I, it would, I would be remiss talking about my musical upbringing. If I didn't mention my dear friend and semi mentor, Jason Roth. So Jason Roth was a kid who was my classmate in grade school and then went to a different high school, but we stayed close. His dad was the bureau chief for variety in Chicago. So he grew up exposed to the best records there were and going to rock and roll shows with his dad at exit. And like, he really knew about good records while I was still listening to most of the stuff that was in my house. But we were Wax Tracks kids. So I used to go to Wax Tracks multiple times a week and spend my meager allowance on not just import English records, but also like Front 242 and Ministry and Nitzereb and the stuff that was, you know, just coming out there. But it was Jason who really introduced me to the Ramones. Oh, my God. The Ramones were so important to me. When I was 12 and 13 years old, I used to listen to Road to Ruin and Rock to Russia. I still do. I played them for my daughter this week. She was she was wilding out. But Jason specifically and having a record store, having wax tracks that I could go into and flip through the bins and actually – like tangibly hold on to the things was a a pivotal, pivotal part of falling in love with music. And it wasn't fetishizing the objects. It still isn't for me. But it was about like the treasure hunt, like the acquisition of finding the thing that was a like a view into outer space. I got the Sieg Sieg Sputnik love missile F-111 12-inch. I was like, holy shit, I've been looking for this forever. Yeah, I remember it. I remember the day. There was something to that, and not to be like, oh, you know, the old days, blah, 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 but there was something different about 
the inaccessibility of information about the band. Right? Sure. You had to just look, you had to parse that record sleeve and the photos, and you stood there staring at it, and you're like, how are they making the sound? Which one of them is making that sound? That how is they, unquestionably like, true. I want to echo, I don't remember some comedian or someone's talking about it, but like the advent of streaming music is fantastic. Oh, Don't yeah. let anybody bullshit you about oh, the I idea totally that like access to all of the world's music at any given time is a bad thing. It's terrible for those of us who make music and would like to be compensated for it. But as far as access to music, it's an it's incredible, awesome. incredible thing. But, but I mean more, I guess, like the The mystery about the, the people. Yeah, right. That's indisputable. I think it's great. Yeah. That's one thing that... I think you don't get nowadays. We used to get, you know, magazines. At Wax Tracks, you could buy NME and Melody Maker and mm. kind of go through and be like, oh, those are the Banshees. Yeah. <laughs> they look weird. <laughs> yeah. There's something special about that, about the unknown, I think, in there. No question. Um, do you have a... Um, you might have more than one... Do you have any secret personal anthems, like songs, when you think like that's somebody else's song, when you hear it and you're like, yeah. like that's a song that gets me through difficult times or that I feel like when things are going good, that speaks, that's sort of telling my story or... Yeah, I have a few of those. I'll, I'll give you a couple. But I also okay. have like the, the list of songs that I would have given my right arm mm -hmm. to have written. Uh -huh. When you write songs, as you know, yeah. I, it's that's the competitive part of it. I'm like, I'm so insanely jealous about, yeah. like, uh, Nick Lowe's "The Beast in Me." Do you okay. know that song? I don't know that one. That song is so incredibly beautiful, and it like, it hurts me that that somebody else wrote that song mm -hmm. and then I didn't. Of uh, personal anthems, I'll take uh, "Waiting to Be Discovered" by the Joel Plaskett Emergency. Okay. Uh, I'll take uh, Game of Pricks by Guided by Voices. I'll take... I don't know. I'm going to think of me. I'll come up with a couple more. I'll toss okay. them out to you as they as Is there another one me. on the... I mean, I'm sure there's many, but on the list of songs you wish you'd written? <sighs> yeah. Um... I Wanted You by a band called Hudson Ford. Okay. If you're in front of your computer yeah. or something like that, Google that one right now. That one's, that's a deep cut. Pause, that's a, pause it's a, the podcast. That's a hit maker deep cut All right, I'm right gonna, there. I'm going to check it out. Uh, yeah, there, there's a bunch. Yeah. There's a bunch. Yeah. There, I feel like there's, a, for me, there's songs that, I think are great, and then there's songs that are like so close. It's like I coulda, shoulda, woulda written that if I had been properly situated. And that can be. It doesn't even have to be better than the the songs that are great. But the songs that are great, and you're like, yeah, I know that never would have been something I would even come up with. Sure. You know, but I think it's those that like. I wasn't that close to writing Billy Jean, but there were some other ones that I, you know. Billy Jean may be fifth best song on that record. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Above Thriller, but below most of the others. Okay. I'm just What's saying. your number one? PYT? Um, Don't say human nature. It's probably, actually, it's probably want to be starting something. Yeah, sure. 
an unimpeachable jam. Right. And I get that the lyrics might not really mean anything, but that's fine too. Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a lyrics guy. You are. I mean, heavy. Uh, but yeah, I don't care that that song doesn't mean anything. But I will say that uh, I don't listen to Michael Jackson anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I'm taking a stand, and it's not because I require a certain amount of moral purity from people whose art I consume. It's just it's ruined for me. Yeah. It just is. Well, that's also kind of going back to the thing you talked about before, like knowing too much about the people who make it. It does color it. Sometimes. You know? It can't, yeah. I just, there's something about it that is uh, that I can't decontextualize. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that it would be uh, hypocritical of me to act like I have a litmus test and if, and these type of people, I will consume their art sure. and these type of people, I won't. The yeah. reality is, is that I'll consume it all, but the Michael Jackson thing is it's over for me. Yeah. I get that. I get that. Um you're also a big reading guy? I am a big reading guy, yeah. Are you a pretty fast reader? Are you I am a fast reader, but uh I I go through periods where I'll read three books in two weeks and then I'll read one book in two months. Mm-hmm. There's stuff on television. Yeah. I watch television. <laughs> so yeah, it seems I like watch you movies. Like, right, you like movies and you like you like T V shows too. And... I love T V shows, yeah. I watch Excuse all the T V shows. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm a big reader of books. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you read all kinds of books, or is there a pre- there a particular? I don't read a lot of nonfiction. Okay, I read mostly fiction, and I read a lot of short stories, which I know is a thing that a lot of people don't do. I think mm-hmm. there's a a bunch of people are turned off by right. short stories. And what do you think that's about? They're like songs. There's a there's something about short stories. Uh, there's something about the economy of short stories that requires, when they're done well, things to be in balance that appeals to me. And in most short, I mean, in every story, even in long novels, there are parts of it that are inferred and parts of it that are unsaid. But in most short stories, that chasm is wider, Mm -hmm. that you're only seeing uh, a limited perspective. And something about that really appeals to me. Why do you think – do you think that's the part that doesn't appeal to other people? Is it too much work or like what is it? So I – I told you I went back to school. I wrote a book of short stories and one of them came – turned into a movie. Right. and when you start making stuff, as you know, you send it out into the world, whether it's a song or a story or a movie or whatever it is. And no one's reaction to anything I've ever given them has ever been satisfactory. <laughs> I've been like, I've been consistently like, so you hated it. Like that's my whatever they say. So you hated it is the way I take it. And I'm not doing a bit. That's the way that I genuinely interpret it. But people say a lot of times when they read short stories that I wrote, like, well, I want to know what happened next. Like, okay, well, what do you think happened next? Uh, I think that people are frustrated by 
uh, people are used to the three-act structure. People are used to the beginning, the middle, and the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the process of making movies and learning how to write movies, which is like kind of my central preoccupation at the moment, you learn a lot about audience expectation, mm-hmm. especially in movies, but it works in books or stories of any kind, which is that like you need to introduce the main character in the first five pages, and you need to have the first conflict happen in the first 11 pages, and you need to have the act break from Act 1 to Act 2 happen on page 25. And I went into being a writer thinking, well, that's bullshit. I'm going to forge my own path. Sure, and then your stuff sucks, and you're like, oh, well, maybe if I do some of those things, it'll get better, and it totally does. So I think that people are sometimes confounded by them not being in traditional story structure. I think people are confounded by the way that short stories are often very experimental. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that really made me fall in love with short stories is when I was probably eight years old, I was given a hardbound copy of The Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay. And it's like a massive, I mean, for a little kid, it's really big because it's heavy and thick. It's a few hundred page book. And reading those stories, which are not all of one thing. They're not all science fiction, and they're not all happy, and they're not all sad, and they're not all freaky, but they're a little bit of all of those things. I think that that book, maybe more than any other, really imprinted on me as far as what storytelling is supposed to be like, for better or worse. Yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting that I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but that short stories aren't more popular as a form. I guess maybe it's the things you're talking about. Because you would think in some ways, I don't know, especially nowadays with the, maybe I'll take that last part back. But, you know, there's TV shows, there's web shorts, there's all kinds of things. People are taking in stuff in all kinds of lengths and so forth, and yet that stuff doesn't really catch on in the same way. No, I mean, I think that there was... A, it's about expectations. Like, well, people want the 244-page the, book. It's the, it, also the venue, right? So, in the glory days of the magazine era, and mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it to talk about it with any authority, but it seems like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and even the 70s, you would have writers like, I don't want to choose all men, but Vonnegut and Updike and people and Cheever and like people who wrote short stories to be consumed in yeah. the context of a magazine. Sure. Uh, if you're not going to commit to a book of short stories, especially if it's a writer you don't know, and I think most people are kind of allergic to that idea, yeah. then you're going to have to come across them in some sort of magazine yeah. or come across them in a like year-end collection in a McSweeney's or in mm-hmm. Best American or one of those collections. Yeah. And uh, I, I I dig that stuff. I'm always looking. Um, what, do you like, what do you find to be a relaxing activity when you want to chill out? What I do watch do? basketball. Okay. And that's soothing to you? Yeah. I watch a lot of basketball. NBA basketball? NBA basketball. Not college basketball? No. Okay. 
amateur athletics is a fraud. <laughs> Not just financially? Primarily financially. Yeah. The quality of the play is not high enough mm-hmm. for me. I'm a, I'm a hoop junkie. Like, I watch a lot of basketball. Uh, I find it uh, graceful and athletic mm-hmm. and also, like, compelling and funny. And when I say it's a relaxing activity, it doesn't mean that I, my heart rate doesn't get up at the end of a close game. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my comfort entertainment do you watch any other sports i do yeah what else do you i watch football okay even though it's a criminal conspiracy understood i watch baseball i watch tennis Mm -hmm. i love tennis i'll watch golf in a pinch but like i won't if it's you know a major or if there's Uh players i care about at the end i'll watch I watch a little bit of hockey, not a lot. I don't watch motorsports. Do you? Is there a particular sport you like to go to in person? Is that different than when you watch on TV? Um, I like to go to baseball games. Okay. I've been a season ticket holder for the Bulls for 21 years, so I go to a lot of basketball games. It's a commitment. I mean, it's also been a lean 21 mm-hmm. years. Let me put sure that out there right now. Might have wanted to shift that window a little bit. Yeah, more. maybe. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it, but uh, basketball translates well to television. Mm-hmm. Not as well as football. I like. I go to one football game a year, maybe two football games a year, but it's infinitely better to watch football on television than it is to go to the stadium and it see it. It seems that way. It's not close. Right? It seems like it's... Right. it's. It's really not a matter of any debate. There's no, there's no real position on the other I side I went to that. one game maybe four years ago, which is the first game I'd gone to in 25 years. Or How was it? You couldn't even tell when something was happening or not happening. It was like you were there, but like no. But it makes you feel a little bit like you're in the Colosseum, like the yes, the oh yeah. I, so I, let's let's take this to a a super uh, pretentious place. We lack in our current day and age the shared experience, whether it's the in person, just yeah. in general. Okay, whether it's a. Like the declining attendance at movies or a record store or a concert or whatever it is. And there's something about being in a giant throng of people that that has a little electricity to it. Yeah, I totally get that. This is actually to go back to your thing earlier about Spotify. Like I would never trade the modern access for to music and so forth for what we had when we were young period but the one of the things maybe one of the few things that you miss out on now is when a song was popular everybody knew that song yeah everybody everywhere so that song came on it was playing in a car like everybody on the street knew that song everybody in a store everybody everywhere knew the, all the songs that were in the top that 10. That happens because you very, very infrequently them. now right. with music. But you know where it does happen? It's happening with the Marvel movies. Mm. And, like, I don't care about those right. at all. I've seen a couple of them. Eva and Ellery have seen pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't 
find it necessary to shit on it. Even I just right. not my thing. But it's kind of cool that everybody's all into this story at right. the same time. Yeah. Same thing about Game of Thrones. I've never seen Game of Thrones. Right. Not my bag. Yeah, I haven't. But I like that I'll people probably watch are it at it. some point. But I haven't. But Will you I know, like that people. We were like, oh, here it is, and now it's uh, five years later. Maybe I'll get back into this hundred and fifteen hour commitment. I mean, I don't know if I'll be in for all whatever number of seasons, but I will probably check out some. <laughs> check of it, it out, see what happens. Yeah. Before there was the TV show, someone had recommended the book to me, and I was like, I- I'll get there eventually, probably. I mean, I have it, but I right. I know when I'll get to it. Yeah. Post apocalypse, we're book like for like eleven months. We're so. like two weeks out from the apocalypse. Anyway, it's going to be like you in right? a vault. Is it coming? Better hope your glasses are okay. Listen, it's like Twilight Zone. I'm going to get eaten in the wild. It's not a problem. <laughs> I'm comfortable with my fate. <laughs> um, how, how are you doing? You I'm okay? doing good. I okay. couldn't. Uh... You're just checking the thing. Yeah. Um, Checking the alarm system, make sure we're secure. I thought it was a clock. It's not. It's yeah. just some lights. Huh? Um, this is a difficult question because I think the our memories from our, of our past selves are generally unreliable. But what do you see the, in terms of the ways you've changed and or the ways you've stayed the same, like f- through your life, or maybe from your teams to now, maybe not from when you're a little kid because there's so much changing, but um, can you identify, do you think about this ever? Yeah. Um, I think, I only think about it all the time. Yeah. Uh, The way that I've stayed the same is that I've been I have an unlimited willingness to just stick with what I want to do and hope that it works out in the end. Um, I have always been driven by only doing the things that interest me as a person, like with what I create with my life, which is music and writing and movies. And for better or worse, here I am. I've made it this far. And uh, I've pretty much only done that. And uh, that's how I've stayed the same. I would like to think that I require the approval of strangers less now than I did when I was 25. Mm-hmm. Um. I won't insult anyone's intelligence by pretending that I put art out into the world and I don't care what anybody thinks about it. But as we talked about with the music conversation before, that I try to be motivated purely by doing shit that I think is cool. Yeah. And I've been privileged enough that I've been able to to still do that. I... uh, I waited a long time to become a father, and I think that a lot of that had was just narcissism. Like, how is it going to change my life? I have a good life. How is, my, how is it going to affect sure. my life? Eva and I were together for 14 years before we decided to have a kid. And then we had a kid, and it made everything else I ever did seem so stupid in comparison that it, 
you know, I can't believe that we didn't do it earlier, but I love being a father more than I've loved anything else I've ever done by, I mean, by an absurd margin. And uh, I've, I've, that experience has changed me, that it's uh, opened up parts of me that I didn't know existed. And uh, I'm beyond grateful to my wife and to my daughter for that. Yeah. Is there some, aside from continuing the pursuits that you have and the interests and activities that you're already involved in, is there some thing or some area or whatever that you feel like is that you want to explore that's kind of on your horizon that you haven't gotten to yet? How deep a horizon are we talking about here? Because uh, I, I have a lot. It's just a question of, like, how far-fetched some of my bullshit ideas are. Oh, it doesn't matter how far-fetched they are. It's just, like, uh, how, I'm more interested in how so I started out close playing, they are to your heart and how, how yeah. interested you are in them. I started out playing music yeah. and writing songs. And then I started writing stories, and that sort of grew into making films. Yeah. And now I still am trying to make some films and trying to make some songs and write some scripts um, and write some stories. I write a couple of stories a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that someday I get to make some visual art, that I get to make uh, the kind of visual art that really moves me. And I don't have uh, any facility as a painter or a sketcher or something like that. But I'm a big modern art, contemporary art nerd. And uh, I have some unfulfilled ambition in that arena. Mm-hmm. Someday. Love that. I'll get there. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like a total dilettante move, right? It's like anything else. Like when I decided I wanted to be a writer, I had always like told myself, that's a thing that I could do if I applied myself. And then I started doing it. And I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And this is actually very hard. Yeah. So I haven't had to have that realization process with art yet. Yeah. Someday. I get it. I'm going to live a really long time. So I have, a, Good for I have you. plenty of time. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm just more interested in what it is you feel like compelled or drawn to or whatever, rather than how feasible it is or how it's going to pan out or what the results going to be. Are gonna, or are people going to like it? Who cares? That's the thing, is right? It's so, like the whole or thing at the beginning even, was even like... what they're going to think about you even trying it or like, who cares? But I'm just interested in what you feel like. Yeah, I want to get into that. I want to get into that. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's cool. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> yeah. We might be a little older then. See what happens. Okay. Don't wait too long. <laughs> you never know. You never know. All right. David Singer, I feel like we have tons of other stuff we can talk we, about. I mean, there's so many things we didn't talk about. But what uh, was, What's one thing you wanted to talk about that I, I didn't I ask about? Okay. I have no idea. We'll get to it next time. I feel like i got to come up with more of the songs that I wish I had written. Yeah. Come back to what else, and we'll talk about that. Come back? Can you have me back? Yeah, sure. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Are Eva and I the first husband and wife duo to make it on yes. to what else? That's right. Yes. Flag planted. 
You're like the Rick and Paul Russell of uh, what else? <laughs> I told you, I can make the most uncompetitive thing competitive. There you go. First. You nailed it. Nailed. Yeah. No one, no one can ever take that away from you. <laughs> all right. Thank David Singer, thank you for being on What Else? Pleasure is all mine. Appreciate it, man. We'll do it again at some point. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.